All right, everyone, and welcome back to the Business of Fitness Podcast. I'm Jason Kleep. On today's episode, we have a returning guest, Rich Razgatis, also known as Raz. Now, Raz is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Flowwater. We've been using their product in our gym for, boy, I mean, pretty much since they opened up, probably about six years ago, and our members love it. And I want to dive into his business a little bit more. Last time he was on the show, we dove into his family life, what it meant to open up businesses. He's a serial entrepreneur, and it was really impactful for me. And when he came back out, I wanted to ask him, you know, what's going on in the business? And today we dove into specifically hiring and how he does it. And I found it to be very fascinating, the interview process, this idea of these characteristics he's looking for out of his new hires, and this idea of being a missionary and not a martyr was really, really actually fascinating. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Please listen to the whole episode. If you do enjoy it, uh, you know, take a screenshot, send us a message, rate us on iTunes, would really appreciate it. And um, let's dive right into the episode with uh, Raz. Let's have a great day, guys. Keep rising the tides and let's get after it. Ready, set, and let's go. All right, guys, so I'm here with Raz and Raz has been on the show uh, about a year ago. Him and I sat down we were talking about family life dynamics and what it's like to be an entrepreneur and Raz has started and been a part of several different companies. I'll let him speak to that. But when we were sitting down today, if you haven't listened to his previous episode, please go check it out. It's about, um, he's the founder, co-founder and CEO of Flowwater. I want to hear more about Flowwater, but when he and I were talking earlier, I said, Hey, what type of situations are going on in your business right now? What is relevant to you? And what type of information can you share with gym owners or business owners in general out there that can make an impact? And one of the topics that we were discussing was this idea of hiring slow, firing fast, and who to bring on the team. And I think Raz and I both agree that in theory, it's always a lot easier to to think you're hiring the right person than maybe to actually have it turn out that way. And in theory, it's you think you could just let them go, but it's not always that simple. So, Raz, maybe we could just start here. What is flow water in your terms, like, you know, basic level? And let's start talking about, you know, what you're going through as a gym, as a business owner. All right, great. Uh, Jason, thanks for having me again on the show. It's great to see you again. Uh, flow water is um, the vision behind our company is to provide the world's best tasting water straight from the tap. And in doing that, what we're doing is building out a decentralized, distributed, kind of democratized platform where consumers can get flow water wherever they work, rest, and play. And what that means is we want to put an end to single-use plastic water bottles as well as single-use packaging. So if you look at the way that water is distributed today, uh, it's primarily or largely through single-use plastic water bottles, which are having a hugely destructive impact on the environment. It's boomeranging back to have uh, what I think is gonna be a pretty destructive impact on human health. So for example, the average American today drinks up to two credit cards worth of plastics, microplastics, as a result of their tap water every single month. Uh, so the irony is that all these 50 billion single-use plastic water bottles that we dispose of and use every year, 38 billion of which end up in oceans, lakes, rivers, and landfills. And once they end up in our waterways, 
uh, single-use plastic turns into microplastic. It doesn't photodegrade, it biodegrade. Excuse me, it doesn't biodegrade, it photodegrades, which means it turns into you know microscopic pieces of plastic that are now entering our waterways, which we are now drinking the very plastic that we've, we've been disposing of over the last few decades. So our entire company objective is to, to put an end to that. But we're doing that by creating a flow water product that hooks onto any type of water outlet. Uh, the problem in the United States that we have today is not called, gosh, if there were only enough water spigots or water faucets where I could get water. That's not the problem. The problem is that up to 80% of uh, Americans either don't like or they don't trust tap water. And so when that's the case, you don't get them to go back to the tap just by telling them, well, it's bad for the environment to use a bottle, go drink from the tap. They don't mm -hmm. like the tap because it's got chloride in there, or it's got fluoride or heavy metals, pharmaceuticals, herbicides, pesticides, microplastics, glyphosate. The way to do that is by delivering a superior product that tastes and hydrates better than anything else that gets them to go back to that tap. Uh, and we're doing that through a flow water refill station. So we'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure. Going back into uh, your second question as it relates to business objectives, business initiatives, and also business challenges. Hiring and firing is one of the most difficult things that I think gets under-discussed. A lot of times people, you know, you read uh, Inc. Magazine. I love Inc. Magazine, by the way. I'm not, I'm not, you know, picking at that. But I mean, you could just read a Facebook post on like, you know, from Inc. Magazine, the five factors in hiring successfully, right? Like yep, it sounds yep, yep. super simple. Yep. Uh, it's not super simple. It is the most complicated any entrepreneur, any business owner, any gym owner. If you own a dry cleaner, if you run a startup company, you run an established company, it is the single toughest thing that you will do if you uh, do it well. Even if you don't do it well, it'd be hard, but it's, it's exceptionally hard to do well. So uh, one thing that I think about, and again, I sure this will turn into a dialogue as well, but I'll just start with one thing that I think about, and I just actually answered a question around um, sacrifices or tough decisions I've had to make in the business that I've really wrestled with. And one of them is hiring missionaries as opposed to mercenaries. So mercenaries typically are in it for the money or any variety of other kind of esoteric factors or maybe non-esoteric factors. Missionaries are people that are in it for the mission. And a lot of times mercenaries are great. You know, they're, they're super motivated, very reward driven, uh, focus on outcomes and delivering outcomes. But the, oftentimes mercenaries kind of lack that soulful attraction to the vision and the mission of the company and the real heart of it. Um, and a lot of times they don't carry the culture forward. So one of the tougher decisions that I've had to make just in the hiring process is to pass on certain people, particularly at the executive level that only have the mercenary characteristics that don't exude the essence of the brand and the vision of what we're doing. So for I'll give you an example of this. You'd be surprised at how many people that I interview over Skype, for example, as a kind of first step, um, are sitting there with a bottle of water. Mm. So that's done. Like that interview, that interview when they show up and they're drinking out of a single-use plastic water bottle, that is an over interview for me. I might not cut it off right away. Yeah. You're doing fine That's right so there. Yeah. That's you so got the reusable. I'm sitting here with my uh, reusable water bottle <laughs> at the gym. Thank you very much. Well, you know, it's funny because I don't tend, I mean, I really, um, our brand is an aspirational brand. So I, 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 I will vilify single use plastics because they're so destructive to the environment. However, if someone's drinking out of single use plastic water bottle, 
I, I, you know, sometimes someone will come up, I'll be at a refill station, I'll bring a single use bottle and they'll be kind of like sheepish coming up saying, hey, do you mind if I refill here? I'm really embarrassed. I've got a plastic water bottle. Like to me, that's a high five all day long because what they're doing is they're using one less bottle from the environment and they're starting to convert that behavior. Uh, so if someone is, you know, using single use plastic water bottles, the best thing to do is not to vilify them, but just to simply show them a better way. However, if they're looking to join a mission and the team, different context, right? So there's other layers to that, but that's just one example of uh, something that could be a deal killer for me. Well, I think that's interesting. Um, so you talk about missionary versus uh, mercenary. Mercenary. That's a really interesting theory. Like I haven't heard that before, but I think it's again back to like your five, you know, five key things to get a, a whatever. It's easy to say, hey, we want to hire someone who's a missionary and not just a mercenary, someone who's really in line with our core values and where we want to go. But people could put on a good front too. So have you hired people that on the surface seem like they're really in line with the mission, but it turned out 30, 60, 90, a year later, they really weren't. And how do you sniff that out ahead of time? And how long are you interviewing someone? What does a typical interview process look like? So you've grown your team now to 60 people. What does the typical interview process look like? How many layers? How do you sniff out the missionaries versus the mercenaries? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'm going to go a couple different ways with this answer and try to cover a variety of questions there. One is that I would highly, highly, highly recommend a book by Jeffrey Smart called Who? And it is like what I think is the definitive guide to hiring. So Jeffrey Smart, he actually happens to be in Denver. I didn't know that when I picked up the book, came highly recommended to me by, by many people. And what you should know as a side note is that I'm a huge 80% solution guy, which is, you know, a lot of people will constantly look for the perfect platform, the perfect recipe, the perfect book, the perfect program. Uh, I'm a huge fan of successfully executing something that is about 80%, 85% right, because going in and executing against that like a badass is going to have a far better outcome than kind of forever chasing this perfect plan, this perfect dream. It's not that it's not to say that I'm not a perfectionist and I don't like things to be perfect, but I'm a big fan of executing against an 80% solution. I think Jeffrey Smart's book, uh, I agree with about 80% of it. The 20% that I don't agree with, I still, we generally execute against. So I had my entire leadership team read that book. We talked about the takeaways. We incorporated some tools or some free tools on his website uh, that are great hiring tools around prior behaviors and actions that uh, are predictive indicators of future success. Hmm. So uh, one is that I get everyone on the same page in terms of how we're hiring, the system that we're going to use. And I don't just let people walk into an interview. I used to years ago, but I don't let people walk into an interview with, hey, go talk to this person, interview them, and then tell me what you think, because they might be using a totally different lens than what I'm using. And a lot of times, personality is a misread. So you might meet somebody, you might just instantly like them. Uh, and that can be a real false positive. And the converse is true, which is you can get a lot of false negatives just based on first impressions without really digging in and peeling back the layers. So using that system has been incredibly helpful for us. Another thing that we do. So just to pause you for a second, you said before someone interviews someone, so let's just say, you know, I want to become part of Flowwater. before your, you know, let's just say chief marketing officer interviews me, 
you try and talk to them and say what? What, what do you say to them? Or do you say anything To the leadership all? group that's doing the interviewing? Yeah. Uh, well, so I'll actually give you an exact rollout of, I'm hiring a CFO right now. So I'll give you an example for the CFO. So the Perfect. rest of my, my CMO, my CSO, my head of operations, they're all interviewing him and her. Uh, there's a couple, I've got three men in the candidate, two women in the queue, uh, two women in the queue. And so uh, in the process right now, uh, we will sit down and the very first thing that I do is draft the JD and I don't just pull some bullshit off of the web, right? Yeah. I, mean, I don't, you know, when like, you say JD, you're talking oh, about a job, job description. description, right? Yeah. So I'll go and draft out the job description. But then what we do is we create a scorecard and the scorecard I think is one of the most important things, which is it is how you're going to evaluate that person's performance over the coming 12 months. And I really try to dr- drill it down into here are the five key things this man, this woman need to be able to successfully achieve his outcomes over the next 12, 24, 36 months. And that's basically their grading scale. So for example, uh, for my CFO, I've got FP&A, financial planning and analysis. So they need to be an, they need to be an animal at being able to do FP&A and looking at CAC to LTV ratios and uh, performance indices and gross margin analysis by channel, et cetera, et cetera. Many of those acronyms don't mean anything. What that does mean though is I have a clear understanding of what I want them to be doing over the next 12 months and driving that throughout the organization. So I pretty much try to narrow it down to five uh, items on the scorecard, which is if they do nothing else other than excel at these three to five things, this this is 80% of the job right here. And then the second thing that I do, uh, and this is all part of the Jeffrey Smart method, by the way. I mean, some of this stuff we've tweaked and I've adjusted. Uh, but the second part is looking at the behaviors. Like what are the temperaments or the personality or the behavioral traits that are necessary for them to accomplish a job. So, you know, one of them is going to be an extreme level of quantitative analysis. I mean, they just need to have uh, this, this, this individual, this man or woman needs to be able to have sheer raw horsepower, kind of a computational power. And I think that applies in any job. I mean, if you're looking at someone at the front desk, you're looking at someone that's a trainer, you know, a lot of times people just go in and they're like, oh, like they need to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Forcing, having a forcing function of creating a scorecard by which you're going to evaluate somebody on three, five, six, maybe max key outcomes and what the, the resultant behavior and, and outcome is going to be uh, from their performance and what that looks like is really hard, by the way. I mean, so, I, I, it took me like probably an hour and a half to do this scorecard for the CFO. And you're doing, so, okay. The direct, you're his, you're his or her direct manager. So the direct manager would create the job description and the scorecard for the position they're looking to hire. Is Correct. That, okay. And then with that scorecard, so the job description, I think, is pretty black and white, right? Exempt, non-exempt, job description, blah, 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 blah. But the scorecard is unique. We, we use scorecards. We do coaching evaluation sheets. But you're having a scorecard for every single position. And now let's just say, for example, um, uh, you know, it's a CFO position and they're responsible for the financials. Then you list these three to five items, but then what do you put underneath them? Do you go one to five? And then in the quarterly review, do you go to them and say, hey, look, we're ranking you a you know moderate contributor because this is this is this? Yes. Or is that the way it works? Yeah. So, so uh, I'll kind of flesh this out a little bit more. And in fact, I'll give you some of the examples of even in my first interview, I have four very specific questions that I ask. And I'm following, again, this Jeffrey Smart Who method, which I think is fantastic. A few adaptations have been made specific to Flowwater. Uh, so we'll create this scorecard. We'll have a communication or a discussion with the people that are in the interviewing process to talk about, 
you know, here's the, here's the role, here's the JD, we're going to walk through it, but then here's a scorecard. Here are the five things that they've got to be able to just crush it at. And here's some of the behaviors that are probably going to be underlying this individual that carry it forward. So then we start interviewing people and I'm going to come back to your question around kind of using that scorecard yeah, continuously no, and driving yeah. it throughout the organization and throughout the process. Um, because yes, that scorecard ultimately should turn into their performance plan. Right. And, so uh, we're actually doing some modifications. Some of this stuff is our own stuff that we're modifying as well. Uh, but an example of that is we're gonna we're gonna take that scorecard and turn it into your kind of plan for success or a success sheet, which is being used to evaluate how you are doing. But it's really not just an evaluation. It's their template of how do they excel. I mean, I'm, I'm going into every hire doesn't always work this way, but I'm going into every hire believing that they have what it takes once I've hired them and also that they have the desire to be exceptional, right? And so now I wanna be able to put in place tools for them to be able to self-identify how they're being successful and how they're tracking against that. Uh, so I'll come back to that kind of towards the end of this. The, so then what we do is we start interviewing. And so I have somebody that goes through a screening process and we're looking at resumes and we're kind of judging them up against uh, the JD and the scorecard, best indicator of future performance is past behavior. Uh, and then I'll generally do a first screening. Even if it's a direct report, I want to do the first screening on all of my candidates. So before they, I might have an inter, I, I might have my head of HR do some of this screening. Sometimes I do it myself. But before they interview anyone else on my team, I want to make sure that I've got 30 to 45 minutes, never more than 45 minutes, never less than 30 minutes, unless it's a disaster. You know, disaster is showing up with a bottle of water. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but they show up and we do a, we do a, FaceTime or a Skype or an in-person, ask one of four questions. One is give me a give me a five to ten minute summary of your background, what you've done, why you've done it, and how you've gotten to where you are today. Number two, um, I go through a set of scenarios with them where I say, okay, visualize it's six weeks from now. You love us, we love you, we've made the job offer, you've accepted, we're doing reference checks, and I'm calling your last three CEOs. What are you, the what are the two to three things that those CEOs are going to say? you are exceptional at, you're better at that than anybody else. And by framing it in the context of the reference check, right. makes them a lot more honest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just for all of us, right? right? Like, you know, you all, it's like, it changes the frame of thinking from, well, what do I think I'm great at? Which is uh, one thing right. sometimes, to what is somebody else going to say I am great at who has worked for me directly? Yeah, it almost seems like they're gonna, yes, it's gonna hold them more accountable to telling you the truth because I like that theory. That's a really interesting way to put it. Hey, if I call these last three, you know, job, your CEOs, what are they going to, and then also it kind of allows them to boast about themselves a little right. bit more yes. because it's coming through a third party. That's, that's right. an interesting way to do it. And then you also get an idea when you're doing the reference checking, because I'm taking voracious notes all throughout this. I mean, I'm, I, I, after every one of these interviews, I've got you know, one, two pages full of notes from this conversation because I referenced back to that during the reference check itself to identify, here's what they said they're really good at. Here's what they said their boss said that, or former bosses would say they're really good at and does that reconcile. Uh, second question is the converse of that, which is, okay, when I go and call these people, what are the two or three things that they are going to say that you're not as good at? And then you get a little bit of an assessment. And that's where the answer really starts. You know, a lot of times on the good things, people will say, yeah, these line up pretty easily. And I think people have a pretty good sense of self-awareness. It's the, what am I not good at? That's really tough. And if they give me some bullshit answer, like I'm really, you know, this is true, uh, I'm sure for a lot of people, but when they say I'm not so good at work family balance, it's like, all right, great. Like, that's fine. 
nobody really is at the executive capacity. Give me another one and right. keep asking, you know, what, I won't let somebody off the hook. And that's kind of a learned behavior or learned skill after a while, because it's really easy. Like you want to be likable during the interview. And so part of this is uh, engaging them and not, and doing so in a non-threatening way, but really digging deep to try to get it to the answer. So if I don't get the answer that I want, um, I'm, I'm not brash about it, but I really dig. I'm like, all right, look, I'm going to, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper here. Let me go a little bit further in to really get the root of it and like, give me two or three others, or what are some things that you don't like doing? And then the last question, the fourth question that I ask them is, uh, what is your career progression? What do you want to aspirationally over the next 36 months? I typically fo focus on, you know, some people say like, what are your career ambitions long-term, like 10 years out? I mean, look, I don't know what's going to happen 36 months from now. I mean, it's a, it's a stretch to know what's going to happen 36 months from now, let alone five, 10 years from now. And so I really focus on what are their career ambitions over the next 36 months. And part of what that helps me get at is uh, some of the missionary components, right? So when somebody's sitting across from the table from me saying, hey, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm among the best of the best at FP&A and fundraising and five-year pro formas and doing cash flow analysis and driving uh, great integration on financials throughout the organization. And for my next 36 months, I want to do something that's mission driven. I want to do something that's got an impact and a breakthrough for the environment. Then I start to get, then I start to get a sense of, is that, is this the platform right. that they want to latch onto rather than, uh, I want to, I want to sell a company and make a ton of money. Like right. if someone says that to me, I mean, sure, everybody probably does to some degree, but that cannot be the reason that they are joining my team and my company. I want them to care about that and be motivated around doing well for the success of the company, but that cannot be the driving reason. Yeah, I like that. So those four questions, the interview process, I like that theory. Those are really good. Now, you were talking about something um, when you were just beginning, how you utilize these scorecards as performance indicators. So let's just say you do hire somebody. Now, you revert back to that scorecard. So you, you're using the scorecard as the interviewer, but does the interviewee see the scorecard as they well? They do not see the scorecard. Uh, they will see it. I, I verbally will talk to them about the scorecard and say, here's what things. I think are the three to five things that, that this has to be uh, in place in order for this to have a successful outcome. And so once they come on board, so to talk a little bit about the progression and also some of the challenges that we faced uh, as we were talking at the very beginning, you know, when it's you and four other people sitting in a gym. Uh, this, or, is a, this is a if you're listening and you own a gym and you want to open up a second location, this is a very, very important piece, what Raz is about to say. So, um, and, and I hope I have a little bit of wisdom, but I also have some battle, <laughs> I have some battle wounds as well. Uh, so any wisdom that I have as a result of, of getting my ass kicked around a little bit over the years. Yeah, you and me both. Um, so I think one of the most difficult things and among many in running a business, but one of the most difficult things is once you get the people scaling the people as well. And so, you know, when it's, when it's me and sitting around a table and there's five people at flow water and we're in an office, I don't even need to train them. They're just absorbing. Like they're hearing me on the phone. They know how I communicate. They know the intensity. They know the pace. They know the expectation. They see me working early in the morning. They see me at like, you know, on email at 2am. I mean, they, they know what they're getting into, but they also understand like, here's the cadence and here's the culture and here's how we treat customers and here's how we follow up right away. And here's how we own our shit and deliver. And if we fuck up, you know, the, the, here's how we say, Hey, you know what? I fucked this up. I got to go fix this. Here's what we're going to do. A, B, and C. Does everyone agree with that? Anyone have a better idea? When you have 50 people, 
that doesn't happen very easily. I mean, it doesn't, no. you know, they, they don't know that. And then you hire a layer of leadership, even if you hire a great level uh, and layer of leadership, you know, one of the, the, one of the problems in scaling a company is marginalization, right? Because, um, it's tough to extend the pace and the cadence and the culture when you don't have that face time. So I'll give you an example of one of the things that I was talking to my head of HR, her name's Katie Shafroth. She's fantastic. Um, and you know, we, I was having this discussion and I said, gosh, you know, I'm really struggling. We've gone from like 20 to 40 people or 20 to 30 people. And I feel like we're kind of losing the essence of like, well, what does the brand mean? And how do you execute? And what does good look like? So, you know, we got these values, which is, um, you know, flawless execution is one of the values. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in a little bit of a self-deprecating way. It's something that I really believe in. But at the end of the day, if those are just two words on a slide as one of the values, someone's like, yeah, flawless execution. Like, uh, okay, great. Like check right. that box. Got right. it. Right. It's really different when I sit in a room and I say, hey, this is what flawless execution looks like. So uh, my VP of operations, Chris Licardi, will give a great example of this. This is what flawless execution looks like. We screwed up a delivery that had a major milestone opening and the flow water refill station had to be in there. We've got 5,000 units in the market right now. And so, you know, you're going to have a few that you misfire on. That's just life. But uh, part of life at Flowwater is addressing and fixing that. And so the long and the short of it was Chris was on the road and this was in Pennsylvania and it was five days of transit time to get a refill station from SF or LA, whichever it was to like Eastern Pennsylvania and the opening was in 48 hours. So there was no way that was happening. So Chris on his business trip flies, I believe it is from New York. We had an extra refill station sitting in Chicago. He flies to Chicago with Angel, who you, I think know, who's one of our oldest employees is a tech down in SoCal. They go pick up a U-Haul truck. They drive over to this warehouse where this flow water unit is. Then they drive it 12 hours to Eastern Pennsylvania and they get that unit deployed six hours before opening. That's to me what flawless execution looks like in the sense of fixing your mistakes, right? So, I mean, if it was really flawless execution, there's one element, right. which is it would never happen. But the right. reality also is some stuff is going to happen. So how, what do you do when stuff happens rather than, hey, sorry, we can't do it. You know, six days of transit time. It opens in two days. Not going to happen. In very rare instances, like, you know, the stuff hits the fan. But in many cases, it's like there's a solution. There's a pathway. And the flawless execution is going and fixing that stuff and delivering. So going back to kind of the scorecard and how the way, some of the ways that we use it, and what we've done to kind of instill the vigor of the culture and extend beyond. Uh, every quarter, we have a training called Flow Water Way. And so I bring in every single new employee in the last 90 days into the company headquarters, and they spend two and a half days uh, with the team. And I'm heavily involved in this. Like, I don't just show up for half an hour and give a speech and like a rah-rah. Like, I'm sitting in that meeting for probably personally myself three or four hours a day on multiple days. And I'm also doing dinners each night with the team, which in addition to everything else I have to do is not an insignificant amount of time on a quarterly basis, but that's how important it is to get everybody aligned to understand, well, why did we start this company? What is the vision? What does good look like? How do we execute flawlessly? What do we do when we screw things up? Um, unvarnished, transparent communication, another value of ours. Well, what does that look like? Everyone's like, yeah, tell the truth. That's important. Well, part of telling the truth is sometimes really just telling people, hey, we have a zero bullshit tolerance uh, policy here, which means you got to lay it out. You got to be really direct with it so that we can get to the answer faster so that we can succeed as a team better. Um, and so those are a couple of examples. So we'll take this quarterly flow water way 
And also what we're migrating to right now is taking the scorecard and turning it into kind of a success. I forget exactly the, 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 the term that we coined on it, but something like a success sheet, which ends up being their scorecard for how they progress during the course of the year. And what we will do is we'll, we will- Do you tie KPIs to that? We do 100%. And so they, you know somebody in Flowwater gets effectively uh, kind of bonused if, if they're on a bonus plan uh, or scorecarded and measured on- two things. One is a company performance. So I've got five metrics, five primary metric metrics that everybody in the organization knows what they are. Units, revenues deployed, excuse me, units deployed, revenues, total contract value. Um, and there's like three or four others. Net promoter score is one of them. Uh, employee engagement is another stat. So we use about seven right now. I'm going to narrow it down to five. So they all get measured about 50% based on how are we doing on the organizational KPIs? Like this is what constitutes the health of the business. The other 50%, they get measured on individual performance. And that's like one of their five KPIs around scorecard, right? Uh, and so what we're moving to, and I got this practice from a guy in Sweden that uh, was associated with one of our lead investors. We raised $15 million in a Series B financing last December. And there was a kind of performance consultant that was part of that team. And I got to know him. His name was Henrik. And uh, I was talking to him recently and I was asking, hey, what are you starting to see as it relates to innovation around performance? And they're using this scorecard similar to what we're using, but they're evaluating people on a scale of one to three. Um, which I think is really clever because two is average. I mean, right, you are right, like right, right, right in the middle and you need some work to do. Three is you're really performing well, but it forces people to drive them into you are below average or you're, you're average or you are above average, which is a very hard thing to do. If you use one to 10, a lot of times when I ask people to rate things on a scale one yeah, to 10. Yeah, they do seven, they do six, seven. So yeah. The rule yeah. in my company is never use seven. You can't ever, if, you're, if we're doing something on a one to 10 scale, no one is allowed to use seven because that ends up being the safety net for all of us, which basically is making a statement with no statement at all. Right, right. That's a really interesting theory. So you, so that the theory that this gentleman in Sweden was talking to you about on this one to three, I think that's actually really cool to think about because when we rank our coaches, right, we have it traditionally one to five. But I guess what you're saying is you're kind of copping out a little bit if you give people fours because you're saying- Four is a seven. Four is a seven. <laughs> right. Ah, that's really, that's really unique. Okay. One to three. So, you know, I, and by the way, the last thing that I'll just mention is, yeah. um, I, I, and I, this is to me a real important truism. and this is, this is one of mine. I am rather anti-annual reviews. So we do them. The reality is anyone going into any, you know, check the box, do the annual review. I, you know, we certainly do annual comp reviews and, you know, performance assessments and whatnot. But I don't do any kind of annual formal feedback review. And part of that is because everybody knows where they stand with me. And the reason for that is I really believe in real-time feedback with people, which is, you know, as, as I've grown and developed in my career, I've been a little bit more selective or I'm trying to yeah. be a little bit more selective, which is you just can't tell. You can't just sit and watch somebody and every time they do something that you wouldn't do it that way, address it. But, uh, you know, I've become uh, pretty proficient at, letting people know and it, it, it you know people will find this hard to believe with me but i mean it took a while for me to develop a level of directness around hey this is fantastic here's what's great about it more of this or hey this did not go well here's what did not go well here's what we need to be able to do to move things forward so that most importantly so they can be successful i mean this is a lot like coaching i think i mean i yeah. I, I tend to think of this business as you know I'm, my job is to see them be successful so that the organization can be successful in turn but also so that they win yeah but how do you jump the gap so i'll give you an example 
when I was, you know, the manager of, let's just say it's five people, it's really easy to have those honest conversations because you have a good rapport with them. But all of a sudden, as your team grows, you know, we went from 10 to 20 to 50 to 100, 150 employees. If I go out and I don't have a good rapport, let's just say it's um, on a, one of our locations and I talk to this person maybe once every six yeah, months. Right. And then I go in there and I'm like, hey, I think you could do this, 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 this. Yeah. And you just leave. And the, la- the lady or gentleman sitting there like, dude, what the fuck? Right? So do you just still have a good rapport with everybody that you're able to do that? Or do you do you provide that feedback to the manager? The manager provides that feedback to it, them. It, de- it depends on the circumstance. Uh, I tend to make direct observations and direct feedback to the person because I think it's most fair. I find it difficult when they're sitting a layer or two down below. Um, I find, you know, because, partly because I don't want to over infringe on that leader's responsibility and accountability. So I might um, really soften my feedback to them and lay it a little bit more gently as I than I would if it were a direct report and then loop back with their leader and say, hey, here are a couple of things I observed. Here's some coaching that I provided. I think there, just going back to your comment about the rapport and then not having a lot of rapport, I actually have found, you know, and this might, I'm sure this applies in CrossFit as well, which is you're hanging out, you've got five people in a box, you know, you go out, you know, grab a drink together, you're working out together, you're with them all day. Sometimes too strong of a rapport is a huge impediment to being able to provide feedback because suddenly you go into the kind of the buddy territory and like, yeah. whoa, hey, I thought we were friends here, right? So I actually think kind of, I think the hardest zones are, the really tight relationships and the ones where you don't have much of a relationship. The middle zone is a lot easier. The middle zone is a lot easier. So here's how I solve for both extremes. Um, one is uh, as the company grows in particular is just being mindful around how much socialization. So I, I think spending time with a team is really important, but you know, there's an amount that is good. And then there's an amount where you end up overextending and it turns into too strong of a personal connection where uh, you can't do sometimes the things that you need to be able to do because you've overextended yourself. Uh, one is that I have found when I hire people, I have a really good, in fact, I have my EA right now working on a list of kind of like Razisms, which is here's kind of like your uh, cheat sheet on how to work with Raz successfully. And here are the things that he really likes. Here's what to look for. Here's what he doesn't want to do. And I don't want to get pummeled with like 10 calls a day. I'd rather a text if it could be, you know, so some of it is simple mechanical stuff. Uh, others are, if you're going to miss a deadline or you're afraid you're going to miss a deadline, you better call, you know, it's like my conversation with him is you better call me in advance, make sure that we are prioritized on if this is the right deadline to miss or my responsibility as a leader is to help you reprioritize so that we can make sure that we get the right things done rather than somebody using independent judgment. And so one of the things that I find to be most helpful is I will in effect kind of ask their permission. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll tell them I'm doing this, but sometimes I'll ask their permission upfront to say, Hey, look, the best way that we can be highly effective and you can optimize your success and your performance is for me to have open range communication with you, which means I shouldn't hold back. It means I need to be able to talk to you and tell you, hey, here's when things are going well and here's what you're doing. That's great, Jason. And Jason, I didn't like what you did over here, here, and here, and I'm sure it was with good intent, but here's how you need to really readjust that. And by asking them upfront and, and kind of telling them, but also asking them, hey, I need to be able to have that open pathway with you helps make it a lot easier because then they're expecting it. Like if they're not expecting it, then suddenly like 30 days in, they're like, whoa, I thought I was doing a good job. And then like Raz is like on my ass about X, Y, right, and Z. Right, right. It's kind of shocking to them. And I've, I've made that mistake in the past. And so now there's a little bit of an expectation set up, which, you know, I walk through and I say, hey, 
all of this stuff, when this happens, like here's what here's why I'm doing it, and right. it's to really serve you. And you're I, setting the expectation from the beginning on how to work with you directly. Right. Yeah. And That's also something and also, I could do better. <laughs> and also what a, and also what good looks like because I want them doing that with their team as well. I don't want them shying and I want their team to tell them. I've had people, you know, I'll give you an example just even on my own personal side where uh you know, I can think of a time where I was interceding too much on a project um about a year and a half ago and one of my employees, she was like a mid-level hire great. I mean, I looked at her as a, a peer, quite frankly, but she was a director level hire. And she said to me, Hey, Raz, I think you got, I, she said, I think you're, you're over engaging on this and you need to let me run with it. I was like, all right, great. Like, I, you know, I thought about it. Um, and I processed and she was right. Uh, and even though I probably didn't think she was right, right away, I gave her the benefit of the doubt and the lenience to say, all right, if you're going to push back on me on that and you want to run with something, you want to take ownership and you think you've got it and we're aligned on the expectations, then I need to also be reflective enough or self-aware enough and coachable enough to be able to take the feedback. And it's hard because when you have a strong personality, like you and I do, I think people have a hard time approaching you with maybe a contrarian perspective or, hey, I need you to be doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that's something that I'm working on. I mean, I'm constantly working on, okay, how, how do I make sure I take the best of being a driver and relentless and execution and growing a business and, 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 and being a missionary for the cause of flow water without being too much of a bull in the China shop, right? Making sure I have enough humility, uh, so that I can see a different way. And I think having a spirit of open debate and disagreement is, uh, is an important part of that. So I want to switch gears a little bit. I like what you were talking about. Um, you're, you brought up a really interesting point earlier where you start incorporating new verticals. And so if you look at our business, we have open to the public, we have corporate wellness, we have digital products. And, you know, did we hit each one at the perfect time? Who knows? But you guys have built a business around creating these flow water stations that we have in our gyms that put out damn good water that we love. I mean, we love it. But now you want to try and take a step further and potentially bring that into the house. So how did you know it was the right time to not necessarily continue? I mean, you're continuing to grow your current vertical, but how did you know you were ready to expand into a second vertical like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's probably, again, same thing. Like, how do you know when it's time to go into the second, third gym or develop ancillary products or, you know, provide additional coaching services or kind of digital like content, right? Um, let me, let me answer that a couple different ways. One is that when we started measuring outcomes data as a result of putting a flow water refill station in a gym, in a hotel, in a school, the data was so powerful in terms of what it did to change consumer behavior that that was another indicator on top of others that we needed to continue to develop the product portfolio to get flow water wherever consumers work, rest, and play. And so, for example, what I mean is uh, when we install a flow water refill station into a location, even though they already have tap water, a water fountain, a five-gallon jug, a water cooler, bottled water, any, it's not like we're putting it into locations that didn't have water and measuring what happens. Cause that would be ridiculous. We're putting it in locations that already had water freely available. We're seeing consumers drink two to five fold more water per day. Uh, we're seeing a 50% reduction in soda and coffee consumption and an over 80% reduction in single use plastic waste. 
So part of that is just an evolution of the business where you look at this and you say, gosh, this impact is happening for $4 a day. That's the impact that's happening. I mean, it's kind of insane because you can't even buy, you know, a nice drink at Starbucks for four bucks a day, for right. four bucks anymore. You're talking about that's how much the unit is. That's, it's $125 a month uh, for a five-year lease, right? So for $4 a day, you can get something that has an insane outcome on human performance and health and fitness that, that transcends many other things. And they're reducing their coffee and their soda consumption, which is all good, of course. Um, it became obvious that an evolution of that had to be into the consumer household. So, I mean, this has always been on the roadmap, but, you know, just looking at the outcomes data from Flowwater and what we've seen over the last two to three years, that's number one. Number two is uh, the, there's an insane number of consumer requests that we're starting to get now, which is partly a function of having 5,000 flow water refill stations out in the market uh, in almost all 50 states across the United States. Uh, we're about to expand internationally with flow water as well, the refill station. But uh, the number of consumer requests that we're getting, and part of that is driven by the fact that consumers are starting to understand that tap water is not one what tap water once was. We didn't have to worry about glyphosate in our tap water roundup and our tap water 35 years ago because it didn't exist. It wasn't right. being used commercially until the 70s. Um, 70s or I think it was late 70s, 40 years ago. Um, another example or kind of another proof point for that is if you just look at the market trends and the mega trends around water and this anti-plastic movement, yeah. it, you know, six and a half years ago, I think people looked at this and they're like, oh, that's a good cause. Like, you, you know, like, cool hippie project you guys got there in San right, Francisco. Right, 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 right. Now, you know, but what they, what many people didn't see back then was there is a massive consumer trend. The world was one way at one point in time, something changed and the world is now another way. And that other way is it is an anti-packaging, anti-plastic world that uh, commercially everyone is getting caught up with. Yeah, right I'd make the argument anti-soda too. I mean, I remember growing up, you'd walk into a Safeway or a convenience store and they'd have giant pyramids of Pepsi right. and Coke. Now I'm seeing giant pyramids of bubbly and, you know, LaCroix and whatever else soda water, right? That's Sparkling a great water. point. Yeah, that's and, a great point. And it was, it's really cool for me to see that because there's a consumer trend, obviously, because I mean, these guys are, they want to make money. They're going to put what's selling in the front. And so to see that it's pretty remarkable. And, um, so your, your units, whether at home or at the work or wherever, you filter it like 5,000 times. I mean, whatever you do to it makes it taste really good and it's nice and cold. So what do you do that's different than just, because downstairs, to your point, we have, we are mandatory to put in a water fountain, mm -hmm. but we also have a flow water mm -hmm. station. I would venture to say that 99.9% .9 of our people only use flow water and not the water fountain. So what's the difference? Because I could taste the difference. Yeah, a uh, couple differences. One is, so I'll kind of simplify this purification system that's built into the flow water unit into one of three components. And so there's three distinct stages of this. The first set of the flow water filters and purification is just removing crap from your tap water, right? And so this might be sediment, might be heavy metals, which, you know, of course could include lead. Uh, it could include and does include herbicides, pesticides, pharmaceutical agents. Uh, and so these are things that are inorganic solids that are like total dissolved solids are inorganic solids that are in our tap water and sometimes in trace amounts. Uh, you know, and sometimes people say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Like I, 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 I you know, uh, I don't worry about trace amounts. Well, I think that's a huge misnomer, right? I mean, I, I don't know any consumer, when you put it in the context around, do you really want to be drinking two credit cards worth of microplastics per month and be 
layering your gastrointestinal tract with that. You're assuming if no. you're drinking tap water, drinking tap, tap water, right? right. Or bottled yeah. water. So there's, there's data as we we're talking at the very beginning, there's data. SUNY just published a study about six, nine months ago that I think it was like in February of this year, uh, that over 90% of tap and bottled water contained, uh, on average, 300 micro particulates of plastic per liter of water. And so, and there's 10,000 known chemicals that are go into creating the plastics that are in bottled water or now, unfortunately in our tap water. And there's only 6,000 only, uh, in tobacco products. Right. And so I, part of this is around removing all of the stuff that's in tap water, even in trace amounts up to 99.9% so that you're starting with something that is largely contaminant free viruses, bacteria, et cetera. The second stage of, of processing, kind of the second stage of the flow water ising uh, tap water is to replenish it with essential minerals, right? And so that includes uh, sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium. So electrolytes that are used for not only taste, but also absorption so that you can have kind of the optimal um, efficacy of drinking flow water. And then another part of that is increasing the alkalinity content. And so we've got a set of trace minerals in there, flow water refill stations that increase the pH by up to 1.5. And then the final uh, filter is a coconut carbon filter. And that is, uh, it's actually pretty cool. You take, um, obviously we don't do this back at the headquarters, but I mean, what we do is we buy from a proprietary source, granulated coconut carbonated husks. So they take coconut husks, uh, fire it, turn it into carbon, and then it gets kind of pulverized into a powder. It looks like thick grains of sand yeah. or like really small gravel, very, very, very uh, small pieces of gravel. And it's put into a filter. And that's the final finishing stage of flow water, which gives it this super clean, crisp taste. But you can only get that by also removing all these chemical agents and these inorganic solids that are in tap water as well, including the chlorine. And that is what happens when you've got a flow water device for... Uh, your hotel, school, gym, corporate office. So what's the timeline look like to get, um, well, first off, I think if you're a gym owner, if you're a business owner and you want to have flow water, um, I'd like to get some information on how that's done. But what's the timeline look like to have this at, at my house? Uh, at your, we're, we are shooting for uh, roughly 12 months from now. 12 so, months. Yeah. So it, this is a really intensive development project. I mean, I will tell you, we developed from start to finish the flow water refill station in about six months. Um, which was incredibly rapid, but there was another four to six months of extension beyond that where we did a lot of tweaking. So our first production run was not 4,000 units or 400 units, but it was four units, right? So we put, took four units, put it in a gym, tested a lot of it, uh, got feedback, made revisions, et cetera. So end to end with the refill station it was about 12 months. So we're estimated around 15 months for the consumer countertop unit. Uh, I'm adding a little bit of timeline onto that, partly because it's complicated to take what we want to do in a big box that is not particularly large. It's got a footprint that's no different than a water cooler. It's a little bit taller and it, you know, that enables it to fast fill and have super advanced purification that cleans the water spectacularly well. Trying to miniaturize all of that uh, is not an insignificant feat. And so we're working on that stuff right now. Uh, we're about 12 weeks into the design process. Uh, we're in the process of also identifying secondary manufacturers that will help us manufacture that and co-develop that in addition to a world-class, you know, there's 15 industrial designers that are working on this project with us in Silicon Valley that uh, worked on some really big name consumer household hardware uh, devices uh, that you would know Nest is one of them. And they're going to be working in concert with us on the development of this that should roll out by end of next year. I love it. Well, look, if you're a gym owner and there's a lot of gym owners that listen to this podcast, if you're a gym owner and you know, we have 
on on this show, I, I try and be very authentic. I only talk to people who we do business with. We only share products that we use. And it's not like there's, you know, if someone wants a flow water unit, it's $125 a month. You need to be on a longer term contract. And I assume from that, that's to build up your evaluation, things of that nature. But we've had units in here f- since you started. Right. And we love them. How would someone get more information or if they want to reach out, maybe you could do something for them. Do they just email? Absolutely. So a couple things. One is uh, you could email info, I-N-F-O, at myflowwater.com, M-Y-F-L-O-W-A-T-E-R.com, one W. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, at flowwater on Instagram is another way. Uh, for those gym owners that are in Phoenix, NorCal, or SoCal. And, you know, the radius of NorCal and SoCal needs to be roughly like 50, 70 miles or so. So if they're way out 200 miles away, we can do this. But uh, we will do a free trial for anyone that's in those markets. And that's partly because we just have owned and operated techs that are there. So it's very easy for us. If they're outside of those markets, they can also get a flow water refill station. Probably 40% of the deployments that we do every month, every uh, month after month, are in kind of outside owned and operated markets, but you simply have to sign up for a contract in advance. There's a delivery and install fee, and then it's $125 a month, which, you know, when you break it down on a daily basis, is a pretty inconsequential amount of money for something that has a pretty consequential impact in terms yeah. of outcomes. Look, I can't, I could speak for us. Our members love it. They do. They love it. I used to go and fill up these big five gallon jugs. I've tried, we used to even do bottled water. Don't, 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 yeah. uh, don't, no, there's don't, no judgment. Don't, no, don't I, judge look, me. Most everybody um, did we, or does. Yeah, we've done all kinds of things, right? But never do we receive the feedback where people drink this water like, oh, this is really good. So I really appreciate you um, coming on the show, talking about your business. You know, I think, I think this idea of hiring, firing, um, what you shared in terms of your questions was really insightful. And I think that any business owner, can kind of use that as a nice flow. And um, so if people want more information, it's info at flow. My flow water. My flow water. Info at my flow water. With only uh, one W. Yes. Okay. Or they can go check out on Instagram. At uh, at flow water. Correct. At flow water. So um, guys, let's keep rising tides. Let's keep getting after it. Utilize some of the tools that Raz was sharing. And uh, thanks again, man. Jason, thank you. It's great seeing you. All right.